The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is meeting the growing calls for deep decarbonization with constant innovation across its inverter business. SunGrow is the leading provider of PV inverter solutions around the world. It's delivered 10 gigawatts of inverters to the Americas alone and 120 gigawatts in total across the globe. Even as the pandemic affected our lives and crippled much of the economy in 2020, SunGrow was able to deliver its technology on time while keeping an eye toward what the future of clean energy will need. Learn more about SunGrow's cutting-edge R&D at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by CPower. CPower is back with a webinar series aimed to help organizations make sense of the chaos of the pandemic and what's happening in energy markets and optimize their energy use and energy spend in 2021. The chances are good that the pandemic has affected energy management for your organization. And this hour-long webinar series features market-by-market breakdowns to help energy planners make the right decisions to lower energy costs, earn revenue, help grid reliability, and achieve sustainability goals. Visit the cpowerway.com slash 2021 to register. There are a bunch of webinars coming up and you don't want to miss them. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Office of President of the United States. And we'll this week, we finally left behind a destructive regime that thwarted environmental policy at every turn. And we exchanged it for a government putting climate experts and clean energy doers in its highest ranks in a way that no administration has done before. What comes next? First, if Biden wants his $2 trillion climate spending plan to make a bigger impact, should he emphasize rooftop solar and small-scale batteries? A new analysis says a local solar storage plan could save hundreds of billions of dollars, adding a modern twist on the central versus distributed debate in renewable energy. Then, the people running major corporations are pitifully ignorant about climate change and what it takes to address it. That's according to a new report from NYU's Stern Business School. Why is that true? Still. And what can be done about it? And last, should you sign up for your utilities green power program? Is there a better way to guarantee that your monthly power bill supports the world you envision? Here with me to envision that world is the usual gang, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine Hamilton is the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. She's there in Arlington, Virginia. Hi, Catherine. Hello. I loved working the red carpet at the Clean Energy for America ball last night with y'all. You're still wearing your tiara. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's a fixture, as you know. Um, it was an incredible logistical event. Jigger, you did a great job. And I would just, uh, I need to apologize to Sam Hill from TMI Renewables because uh, he came to my table hoping probably to have a cogent conversation. It turned out all my raucous adult children were also at that table with me. And um, yeah. It was probably a little out of hand. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, <laughs> the Hamiltons were boxing people oh, out. Oh, <laughs> gosh. It was a great event. Yeah, it was, it was a great really event. Fun. Kudos to everyone who organized it. And it, it was just so refreshing. What a, what a, I mean, the backdrop of darkness is, is still there, but boy, did it feel good. Um, well, you know, people worked so hard for so long through the entire campaign cycle, frankly, all the way back through like Jay Inslee's announcement for president and all those reports. And they really needed like a chance to let their hair down. 
right? Like, I just think that with COVID, like, we don't get a chance to do that anymore because you can't go to a conference, you can't go to a bar, you can't just hang out with friends who aren't in your pod. And like, and so, I, I mean, you know, it, was this the same as a ball? No. But I mean, the platform was way better than Zoom. Totally. Jigger was wearing a tux, Catherine was wearing a tiara, and little do people know that actually Catherine has a new tiara for every episode and Jigger has a, a new colored tux. So um, people got a glimpse of, of what we're actually wearing when we record this I show. I should start wearing my son's tiaras from Frozen. <laughs> so Jigger is the president of Generate Capital. He's our other co-host. He's there in Bethesda, Maryland. So let's get into the lineup here. If Joe Biden wants to build a net zero emissions grid by 2035, what's the right mix of technologies to do it? A new analysis has one answer. Make it as distributed as possible. By building out rooftop solar and smaller batteries and using a lot of data and making smarter use of the grid infrastructure we already have, distributed energy could save the U.S. $473 billion by 2050, plus create 2 million additional jobs. That's the finding from a roadmap for solar plus storage prepared by Chris Clack, who is the founder of Vibrant Clean Energy. He is a well-respected modeler, and he put together this analysis for a coalition of solar companies and organizations called the Coalition for Community Solar Access. There's a conventional wisdom that utility-scale solar is cheaper and that rooftop uh, or smaller solar costs more. And on a levelized cost of energy basis, that is often true. But the team creating this analysis found just the opposite. They used up-to-date modeling from Chris Clack, showing that the way regulators and grid operators are building out new power plants just doesn't make sense anymore. And it fails to take a lot of crucial stuff like the distribution system into account. So Jigger, how does utility planning and modeling work now? And then we'll get into how this is different. Well, you know, let me just talk about that from Chris Clack's perspective, and then we'll go into the utility perspective. I think from Chris's perspective, he can get down to three kilometers of um, sort of like visibility when he's modeling transmission and distribution and, and generation, right? Which is pretty impressive. I think what's different about this analysis is that he basically was able to figure out when distribution assets actually have a positive impact on grid assets. So when you think about the way these things have been modeled in the past, you basically say you got to generate a bunch of stuff. When is it likely to generate power, right? Because the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. And then what transmission constraints are you going to have? And then how do you get it back down to load to you know, power someone's air conditioner? What Chris showed was that actually that raw analysis leads to a lot of uh, reliance on peaker plants, for instance. So when the wind wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine, and it relies a lot on overbuilding transmission. So there's a lot of transmission that you have to build for that five days a year that you need extra transmission to send power from Arizona to New York. And, and when you put in distributed generation, he certainly didn't say that distributed generation was cheaper than utility-scale generation. He said the right amount of distributed generation would actually allow transmission infrastructure to get better utilized and allow you to reduce the number of peaker plants that you need. Um, and so, so there was an optimization question, and he found that that optimization 
showed that there's actually a lot of distributed generation that could be optimized within our traditional thinking of how to decarbonize the grid, which, you know, to me, I think is something that many of us who've been fighting for distributed generation thought was intuitive, but he's actually proven it through a model. Yeah, I'm involved in a lot of integrated resource planning processes um, in states where utilities are fully integrated. And the modeling tools simply do not account for the customer, any customer cited resources. It's all just load. Uh, sometimes they'll account for some efficiency programs to mitigate that, but it's mostly just load. So it's all about ca- capacity expansion and production cost modeling that does not include anything but the supply side. So this, something like this tool could completely change if they use it. You know, the, the key is you have to l- use a tool like this and bring in the customer-sided resources. Um, this could really change how utilities plan and how they think about where the resources that they need are coming from. And I talked to Jeff Kramer, who is the executive director of Coalition for Community Solar Access, and he said, look, we didn't even include indirect benefits of the modeling, only the direct monetary benefits, um, like avoided generation, distribution costs, et cetera. So this is safe to assume that these benefits are a floor to what we could get from integrating all of these resources in a planning process. Chris actually built his own computer system, as reported by Sammy Roth of the LA Times, to do this analysis. Um, I just got to say, Chris, if you want to use that computer system to do automatic transcriptions for us and to edit this podcast, like we'd be more than happy to come over and, and borrow it. But otherwise, you can save it for utility planning. Um, Jigger, will utilities use something like this? I mean, clearly, this is a way to show, hey, we have the technological tools to model the system differently. Do you see this influencing some kind of shift in the way utilities actually put together those models and do planning. Well, remember that it's not the utilities that have to use this information, right? The utilities have their own proprietary models, and they don't really even have their own models. They have consultants who have their own models. And then they avalanche public service commissions with information when they say, all these people are, in, are installing, you know, electric vehicle chargers with Teslas, and it's going to overwhelm the grid. And here's, you know, our latest submission of $800 million worth of distribution system upgrades that we need to do to be able to make sure that people can charge their Teslas, turn on the air conditioner, and cook with their Instapot at the same time, right? And, and you know, basically, now, a lot of the folks who participate in those proceedings, like Catherine and many others can say, well, actually, we have our own modeling. And our own modeling shows that you could do this 90% cheaper, right? And here's how you could do it, and it's better for ratepayers. And oh, guess who then will love you a lot? The you know AARP folks, the folks who don't want electricity prices to go above the cost of inflation, which it has been going above the cost of inflation for about eight years. And so you're in this situation where the Public Service Commission you know, wants to have the best information by which to make a good decision. And right now, they're not really getting both sides of the story. They're only getting one side of the story. The other side of the story has a bunch of anecdotal information and policy papers. But now you've got a modeling tool by which you can say, hey, look, you know, we have a modeling tool, they have a modeling tool. Now we're one for one. That's right. In an IRP proceeding, I spend most of my time saying, 
uh, can we see your modeling tool? Can we see the assumptions that go into it? Are you including this? Are you including that? And uh, this way we could say, if you include this and that, you will have a different outcome. And I think that is, as Jigger says, going to be really important to regulatory decisions. I think the regulators will really be happy to see something like this, whether or not they make the decisions based on it. That's another story. But I think it will give us a better advocacy tool to use uh, when when, when we're there in those proceedings. Why? Why is this cheaper? I mean, why does adding 247 gigawatts of rooftop solar and a bunch of batteries in garages or in commercial facilities or a bunch of community solar end up saving so much money? What are the factors involved that that actually save us money, according to this model? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I think that the, the nub of it is that when you build a transmission line, it only becomes cost-effective when it is fully utilized, right? And through the FERC proceedings that we've just gone through, um, they show that over half of all of the lines in the United States are used less than 40% of the time, right? And so when you say, hey, you know, a new transmission line costs only about a half a cent a kilowatt hour to transmit wind power to this other place. Well, that's only true if it's used 100% of its capacity, right? If it's only used 40% of its capacity and it's only used, you know, this number of hours, well, then it becomes two cents a kilowatt hour, right? And all of those people are getting that cost socialized on their electricity bills, right? So now the question becomes, if that person could have put solar on their roof and a battery in their garage, and they actually were going to save money this way uh, to do this, and they were going to like align the battery usage for the charging of their Tesla or the you know use of peak power on the neighborhood grid. Remember, it doesn't really matter what happens at your household. What really matters is what happens on your distribution line that, you know, is south of the, you know, distribution feeder. And so, so as long as those loads are balanced and everyone isn't turning things on at the same time, it could, it could, you know, for a million dollars of investment here could save you a hundred million dollars in upgrade costs on reconductoring an entire transmission line to use only for five extra days a year, right? So the, so the thing is, is that, the utility basically always thinks, what is the absolute worst case scenario? And I need to have plenty of extra capacity to deal with that worst case scenario. Whereas you as an individual have an entirely different calculus on how you make decisions on whether you put solar on your roof or battery storage in your garage or sign up to a DER program to allow your thermostat and water heater to get controlled by you know, uh, independent companies to be able to help manage loads. Also, a lot of what we encounter on the grid, as Jigger alludes to, is very localized. So by using distributed energy resources, you solve for those local problems that you don't have to deal with on a system level. You can deal with them very locally, and that becomes a much more cost-effective solution. The one other thing that we don't talk about much, though, that is increasingly true, is that when you build utility infrastructure— they get a guaranteed return that's double digits. <laughs> and when you look at where Nextera Yield and Sunrun and all these folks are now, they're substantially lower cost than that, right? They're at the 5% cost of capital range now. I mean, it is shocking how much money is going into the clean energy space. You know, Bloomberg just talked about $500 billion getting deployed last year. 
And the cost of capital around that is going down. And so that's another big source of value is that a lot of this stuff is actually financed really cheaply. Yeah, but utilities want to own as much of it as possible, and they're really good at building centralized infrastructure. So there is a very uh, clear wall in the way that they value, build, and own these assets. And they can't they can't do it as easily with a bunch of distributed assets. I mean, they're just not set up to do that well. So this is, to me, one of the biggest challenges. It's not necessarily even the modeling. It's that, that they're structured to own big stuff. Well, it's their business model. Yeah, that's their entire business model is to get a rate of return on what they build. Right, but the big stuff is not... But I don't know that, that that it's true that they're structured to own big stuff, right? From the office of the CFO, they're structured to put money out the door that the Public Service Commission actually agrees to rate base, right? Which could include energy efficiency rebates, for that matter. And so when you talk about big stuff, that's in a different side of the utility that has a cultural issue where they like to control the grid using the telephone because they didn't realize that the internet was invented. And so the question really becomes, how do you view these big blocks of technology deployments? Like LG, for instance, has already connected all their new refrigerators to this DER program. And they have gone to the utility and said, how much will you pay us to use this as a grid resource. And the utility has said, uh, we'll get back to you. This is LG. Like, it's not a small startup company, right? The water heater guys are doing the same. When you talk to Reem, Reem is like, yeah, we have a new smart water heater. We understand the DER revolution is coming. And we've already built in all the protocols by which the utilities can control our water heaters and help use this as a grid resource. But the utilities haven't given us the rules by which to do that because they thought maybe they could get away with not doing that. And so, so now you're in a situation where... The utilities can put big money together. And the other thing I would say is when you think about, you know, some of the good work that like Holmes Hummel has been doing and others, you know, they have been have been arguing that this is actually how you help communities of color and frontline communities. Right? A lot of a lot of this rate basing is actually, you know, in other words, like weatherization. It's like ways in which you can help people on bill assistance reduce their electricity bills and get, you know, a better living space. That's a good point. I want to touch on that more. Something interesting I learned here is that for every megawatt of distributed PV, there are 8.3 jobs created. For every megawatt of utility PV, uh, you create only around 3.3 jobs. So that has implications for the just transition. Um, And obviously people who get these systems cited on their homes or in their local businesses get a, a greater benefit. So how does this play into the Biden administration's vision for making this an inclusive transition, Jigger? Yeah, well, I think we, we need to be a little bit cautious, right? I mean, we certainly don't want people digging up holes and then filling them back in with dirt. Um, you know, there's lots of ways to create jobs. But I do think that it does take more jobs to obviously talk to people and get people to agree to the vision and and then to go into their homes and, and, and do uh, big work. But I do think that, you know, the Biden administration has said that, look, 40% of all this money of the $2 trillion that he has talked about needing has to go to enabling this just transition. And, you know, part of this is providing people with good, meaningful work and jobs, right? Um, Which, you know, I think our industry is quite committed to doing. I'm not sure that we've done a great job of it over the last 20 years, but I think we realize that now and are trying harder to get on top of that. But I think the other piece of it is, is recognizing that, 
you know, three, four years ago when the polar vortex hit in the Midwest, there were a lot of people whose homes could not be heated above 55 degrees. Their locks froze from the inside, right? I mean, and with climate change occurring, a lot more of those extreme weather events are going to occur. And we need people's homes to be more resilient so that they can actually live in those homes and, you know, and, and, and provide, you know, a safe household uh, for their for their family. And so I think that a lot of these things are interconnected and the electric utilities would be best served if they plugged into this greater narrative as opposed to fighting for what they've been doing for the last 20 years. Yeah, and I would just also put in a plug for community solar because that's a vastly undertapped uh, set of projects and resources that does not rely on home ownership, um, and everybody gets to benefit. So that can also help underserved communities significantly. One final question, Catherine, on the policy implications. We've seen a bunch of very good analyses recently, one from Energy Innovation showing that we could accelerate the net zero grid from 2050 to 2035 cost effectively, one from Jesse Jenkins' group over at Princeton University, and now this analysis from Vibrant Clean Energy and the Coalition for Community Solar Access. So how does this feed into what the Biden administration wants to do in its net zero plan for the grid by 2035? What are the policy implications and what can they favor or put out there that could move us in this direction? Well, one thing that they already have the ability to do that passed at the end of 2020 in the energy package is there has been some more funding and uh, legislative text around doing better modeling. And so I think that the Department of Energy making sure that they can highlight this type of modeling as really important and providing those resources to utility commissions and and you know state organizations is going to be really helpful because so many of these decisions are really state based and you know state commissions that make those decisions but if they can get resources and they none of them have enough resources to do so um if they can get the resources from the department of Ener- energy um and in a way that shows that they can save money, help all of their communities, whether it's a just transition or environmental justice components, um, and get to that cleaner grid cost effectively. I think that's going to be really important for Department of Energy to do. But that's the key, right? Is this cost effectiveness point, right? Is it, you know, one of the things we fought tooth and nail back in 2007 was this Severin Bornstein argument, which was that you should only do utility scale solar because it's cheaper and you shouldn't do any distributed generation because uh, it's more expensive. And actually being able to prove that that's not necessarily true and that you actually need a diverse set of solutions um, is pretty critical, right? Like, otherwise, it's just a bunch of empty words coming out of the mouth of, you know, like advocates. Well, we now have experience and the modeling has just gotten so much better. And all three models that I just talked about have a significant role for distributed generation. I mean, Jesse Jenkins, for example, models a lot more utility scale renewables, but he also says that there's a ton of distributed generation as part of their net zero mix. So it is clear that that is going to play a significant role in whatever the transition looks like. Let's wrap it up there. 
Coming up, why are corporate boards still so far behind on climate and ESG issues? First, the Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is a leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. Its focus on R&D and service have allowed it to grow significantly in recent years. And in 2020 alone, SunGrow deployed 5 gigawatts of inverters to North America. And it's not just supporting energy providers and Fortune 500 companies with deep decarbonization goals. It's also making those commitments itself. In the past year, SunGrow joined the RE100 with the commitment to switch its global power needs to 100% renewable energy by 2028. SunGrow is innovating, it is living up to its own standards, and its massive R&D task force is pushing the boundaries of innovation to deliver practical solutions for cutting-edge solar projects everywhere all around the world. To learn more, visit sungrowpower.com. We are also brought to you by SeaPower. If you are making decisions about the energy spend, energy use in your organization, which I know a lot of listeners are, you're probably a little confused. It's feeling a little chaotic. The pandemic has thrown markets out of whack. So what do you do? If you want to understand what is coming and how it impacts your business, go to C-Power's webinar series, which is going to be taking place over the next few months in 2021. It's an hour-long webinar series that features market-by-market breakdowns to help energy planners make the right decisions to reduce energy costs, earn revenue, help grid reliability, and achieve sustainability goals. It's also going to include guest appearances by leaders in several commercial industrial sectors, including healthcare, commercial real estate, oil and gas, and more. You can learn more about how your industry and others are maximizing their energy assets around the country. Sea Power and its 2021 Demand Side webinar series is here to help you. Follow the link in the show notes to sign up. At the start of last year, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink said he was going to orient the firm's strategy around climate change. This is, of course, a massive, the world's biggest asset manager. It's an investment management firm with nearly $8 trillion under management. It kicked off a new era for ESG in the corporate world. But this year, we start with a stark reality. Most of the world's biggest companies lack the basic talent on their boards to execute this kind of strategy. Board members at major corporations are just not prepared to understand the severity of the climate crisis or what to do about it, neither by education or work experience. And that's a problem, according to a new report from the Stern Center for Sustainable Business at NYU. Of 1,188 directors at 100 of the biggest U.S. companies, only 6% of directors had relevant credentials in environmental protection, and fewer than 1% had expertise in either climate or water-related issues as recently as 2018. And it's not just directors. The people who do get it have been siloed as sustainability directors in the C-suite. Um, they're often kind of making decisions within the company that are not funneled into the rest of the, the, the executive decision-making. And they can lack authority and lack budget. That is definitely changing a bit, but it's still a major problem. So, Jigger, what is this uh, NYU report saying about the problem? How significant is this? Well, as you know, I mean, we've been talking about ESG for a long time, right? For years. And uh, it really has picked up steam in the last 12 months, I'd say, with a lot of folks from BlackRock to many others saying, you know, we need to see better leadership out of companies. Otherwise, we're not going to invest in the companies. We're, you know, going to, um, you know, really study how well you're doing on all these metrics. And so all the boards have now had to uh, self-report 
uh, things beyond just the carbon disclosure project, but also, you know, on the S and the G part of things, the social and the governance side of things. And on top of that, there's a lot of data that now shows that companies who are serious about ESG actually do better financially. You know, I think that the reason why the board's are having a hard time. And NYU has basically found that less than 5% of board members have any expertise whatsoever in these areas. And that's just the S part of things. And it's even lower for the E environmental side of things and the G, the governance side of things. Um, is because for many of these board of directors, I think you have to start from who are these board members, right? And for the Fortune 500, these are board members who basically have a sweet gig, Right. Like you come out of like government, you come out of industry and you get onto a board. They pay you two hundred thousand dollars a year. They give you stock options when we're not in covid times. They fly you to some fancy resort for the three day board meeting. And it's kind of fun to be a board member. Right. There was a little bit of extra caution thrown in after the 2008 financial crisis. And people said, hey, what were those board members doing? Why weren't they doing more governance? But all in all, right, you don't want to be the noisy person and say, oh, yeah, pick me for your board because I'm the noisiest person, right? And so so there's a little bit of a conflict as to why board members are chosen, right? So then once they get on boards, I think a lot of them take their job pretty seriously. But then what NYU is pointing out is that they're not actually well-equipped, they're not well-trained to really you know, question what the company is doing. And then the last thing I'd say is that, you know, a lot of this um, information that shows that people who take environment, social, and governance seriously do better is not intuitive to most of the board members, right? So they're like, well, if we pay extra to like protect ourselves from these environmental risks, how is that not hurting our bottom line? Or if we pay extra to like, deal with Black Lives Matter or figure out how to make sure we have a more diverse management team, like that just increases our recruiting costs, right? Um, or governance. They're like, well, yeah, sir, we, sure, we have phishing exercises that occur and we have some cybersecurity risks, but, you know, we're not that like important. We don't have to spend $50 million on, on protecting ourselves from that stuff. And so it's one of those things where they just aren't well-trained and well-equipped to really understand that being proactive here is really great for the bottom line. Not, It doesn't hurt the bottom line. Let me riff on that characterization of board members. This comes from Tensi Whelan of NYU, who wrote in Harvard Business Review about the report. And she writes, Today, most corporations have a preponderance of former CEOs on their boards. The CEOs were in charge 10 to 20 years ago when ESG issues were not specifically identified as financially material and may burden boardrooms with an out-of-touch mentality. In contrast, PwC found that female board members are more likely to say that material ESG issues like climate change and human rights should be part of a business strategy. Catherine, what's going on here? How do we change these boards? Yeah, yeah. so you get to the S part of the ESG where they are getting more women on boards, which is really important. Um, I reached out to Andrew Winston from Eco Strategies, who's my go-to ESG guy. And, <laughs> and, and a friend of the podcast. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. And he pointed to a few things. One thing he said, look, almost all large companies do have um, some kind of climate goals and sustainability programs. Now, just because you have a chief sustainability officer does not actually mean you're doing anything sustainable, but a lot more companies are doing it. In the RE100, which is a group of companies that have committed to purchasing renewables and to tracking those with transparency, there are over 280 members in 140 different markets, and they've driven 315 plus terawatt hours a year of renewable energy development. So it is happening in, you know, the actual on the ground renewable energy development is happening. The chief sustainability officers now are are brought more often into investor meetings. So that is happening. But he agrees that the weak link uh, is the board. And, um, you know, only a third of them have any knowledge or information at all on climate change. And over half of them say that any um, focus on climate is overblown, that it doesn't really have a material impact. So as Jigger says, um, part of the issue is just finding board members who know what they're doing and focusing on the E part of the ESG when you're, when you're recruiting board members. Jigger BlackRock, which is the world's biggest asset manager, says it's going to vote against directors who don't take climate change sufficiently into account. Is that going to create change at some of these bigger companies? They're such a massive shareholder and so many of the world's biggest corporations. Yeah, well, remember, you know, it was Brian Deese that was pushing for a lot of the stuff when he was at BlackRock and now is the head of the National Economic Council. So, um, so I think it's, you know, a pretty big deal that they're doing that. And it it acts a lot like a presidential veto, right? When the president says, I'm going to veto that idea. It's similar to BlackRock saying, I'm going to vote against people that that don't have enough E. Like, you know, it basically makes CEOs think, well, I don't want BlackRock voting against my director slate. So let me make sure that I either highlight the E part of the folks I was going to choose anyway, or maybe I actually choose slightly different people to, you know, to get this additional expertise, right? Because, um, you know, for many of these board members, they don't, or many of these CEOs, they don't really care per se, like who exactly they're bringing on. They just want to bring on people who, you know, are going to you know, generally help the business and be productive on the board. And so, so I do think that it makes a big difference that BlackRock's doing this. One thing, that, you know, one anecdote I'll share is that um, there are four major large players that are coming in to basically disrupt ExxonMobil right now uh, because their, you know, valuation has gone down so much. And when they talked to the CEO of ExxonMobil, um, he was like, well, I think this is cyclical. I think it'll come back. When When they actually talked to the chair of their board, the chair of the board is like, mm, you're actually right. I probably should be doing more for my fiduciary duty. And so I think that when you when when folks put the board members in on a pedestal and like spotlight them a little bit, and they're not sort of just in the background, but they're actually being studied by reporters and others, the board starts to say, wait a second, I'm not as Neanderthalish as you paint me out to be. I actually do care about these things. And so a lot of this, frankly, is just putting a spotlight on the board members and getting them, you know, like sort of to recognize that they're being put on notice that they actually do have to prove that they are seeking the training in the ESG space. And I think that alone plays, you know, a big role because they don't want to lose these sweet gigs. So, Catherine, you mentioned that you talked to Andrew Winston, who wrote this book, Green to Gold. And in that book, he outlines like some very real supply chain risks 
to the world's largest companies. It's not just an opportunity to grow their business. I mean, they have to manage very acute risks to the way that they run their companies. What are some of those risks if they don't bring in the appropriate talent that's thinking about orienting their businesses? Jigger? Yeah, you know, I think that that one of the things that people just take for granted, even in the solar and wind community, right, is that there are definitely places that are going to be underwater like soon, right? Like most companies haven't even done an analysis, which is available from like S&P and Moody's around here's all my addresses. Here are the ones that are going to be underwater in 20 years. <laughs> like I should probably move sensitive uh, processes like chemical plants, et cetera, away from those places, right? But similarly, like when you think about um, just just how uh, climate change is going to affect some of these things, like we're starting to build wind and solar farms in places that are like, you know, prone to tornadoes, right? And, you know, I mean, you know, solar panels are quite resilient, but they're not resilient to tornadoes, right? And so I I just think that when you think about all the different implications of what it means to build infrastructure uh, that's supposed to last for 30 or 40 years to get your full return on investment out of it, thinking through, you know, how is the world going to change, right? How are these things going to affect our assets, right? Should we be training our employees to, you know, look for some of these signs in a different way so that they can report it back up the chain so we can make better decisions, right? Those kinds of things require a board member to say, hey, I know that this is a little bit confusing and sort of a pain, but you know, can we actually start doing these things? Can we pay S&P a million bucks to actually evaluate all of our assets? Um, and, you know, I think that those things are insurance premiums, basically, that you're paying that really do pay dividends, but is, you know, low down in the priority list unless a board member highlights it. Yeah, I highlighted on my free electron last week, the Moody's report on the risk of debt. And you're not paying attention if you don't notice all these as a board member. But I would love to turn to policy for a minute. Because as I as I want to do, that's right. Naturally, let's let's do it. Yeah. So, um, corporates purchased in 2019 32 percent of all non-hydro renewable energy generation in the U.S. It's a big deal. And the Advanced Energy Buyers Group came out with a report just this week called Organized Wholesale Markets and Corporate Advanced Energy Procurement. And what they say is that corporate behavior and purchasing of clean energy is really dependent on policy for wholesale markets, whether it's a virtual power purchase agreement or a regular power purchase agreement or renewable energy offerings with utilities or flexible and customer-sided resources. So much of this depends on a functioning organized wholesale market for electricity. So they're working, this is Advanced Energy Economy, is working on trying to make sure that we create wholesale markets. You know, there isn't one in the Southeast or the Southwest, really, that's functioning. Try to fix the markets that are currently out there, and hopefully we're all working to do that. Um, But that policy is really key also to the way corporates uh, behave and also are able to capitalize and reduce their risk by purchasing clean energy. So when Catherine goes to a board meeting, she goes to that three-day meeting and they're like, hey, do you want to go golfing? Do you want to go do something? She's like, no, sit down and read this 100-page report on regulatory frameworks for 
renewable energy. You betcha. No, we're going to hire <laughs> Andrew Winston to come in and actually like, you know, give a presentation to them about the 100 page report. But um, but one of the thing I'd say on policy, though, Catherine, is that, you know, obviously, Elizabeth Warren has been trying really hard on this corporate governance piece. And, you know, I think the Business Roundtable came out last year and said, hey, you know, this shareholder primacy mandate is something that, you know, probably needs to be lessened. And we need to think about other stakeholders in the process. And then Elizabeth Warren came back out, I think, in September of 2020 and said, um, the Business Roundtable was just issuing empty words, and they didn't actually follow through on that pronouncement. I mean, you know, like, how do you see this playing out? I think we talked a little bit on about like SEC appointments and, you know, and some of that stuff. Like, I mean, it does feel like this is going to be discussed during the uh, appointments and Senate confirmation hearings. Yeah, I would definitely think that's the case. And and I think it should be. This is really important. And I think you have corporate leaders who are all in to make it happen. Let's finish up the show with a question from a listener about utility green power. This question comes from Max Moran in Jackson, Wyoming. Jealous that you're there in Jackson, Max. I hope that you are riding there in the mountains. Um, but he has a question about the uh, the utility there. The local utility in Jackson is a co-op called Lower Valley Energy, and it is telling him that if he opts to pay one penny more per kilowatt hour, 6.8 cents instead of 5.6 cents, then the utility is going to use that money to buy hydropower from two dams. And Max asks, what is the chance that they're not buying that power already? He writes, here's my dilemma. How do I know for certain where my extra penny per kilowatt hour is going? Surely the utility is not constantly adjusting its grid mix based on how many customers are opting in for the green power program. Likewise, how can the utility honestly say that my green power contribution is helping purchase electricity from its, quote, two low-impact hydro facilities when these sources are already contributing to the electricity mix regardless of my extra penny? We wanted to answer this because it is a question that a lot of people are probably asking themselves. And as we head into the new year, I think a lot of people are saying, hey, how do I increase my purchasing of renewable energy? Should I do it through the utility? So this is a bigger issue. Let's start first with Lower Valley Energy and what we think is happening, and then we'll go to some broader lessons. Jigger, is Max's extra penny having an impact? No. <laughs> there you go. Why? Yeah. No, I think, um, well, if, if you think about the history of these things, um, it was the case back in the late 90s and early 2000s that a lot of these assets like small hydro dams, other things, were actually being shut down because we had way too much power on the grid. And, you know, those facilities were not being maintained. And so people were saying, we're just going to shut them down. So at that point, if you added an extra penny to your bill, it was likely that it, me it meant that those existing facilities were going to run longer, right? So from that perspective, it was helpful, Right. But today, with all the clean energy standards and the Biden 100% clean energy by 2035, et cetera, if you have existing clean energy that's operating and you're paying a premium for it, then someone's really probably trying to get more money out of you than they should. 
Yeah, I talked to Daniel Tate of the Energy and Policy Institute, and he said exactly that. He said, why pay a premium? Um, this is not a boutique product, um, that you should not be paying a premium on something that the utility is already doing and is already getting rate recovery to do. So a couple of things he also mentioned is that um, if you have a program, you want to make sure that, there, that that program is open to everyone. Um, that it's additional, that it is adding renewables, and that you can actually have some insurance that that is happening, um, that you can keep any of the recs that you're able to get from that, and um, that the customers benefit. So you know, rather than paying the utility to do something, see what they can do for you, um, because it should not be a calculus where you're having to pay them to do something they're already doing. I had a real chuckle over the description on Lower Valley Energy's website about green power. It sounds like it was written in 1995. It says, green power or renewable energy is a relatively new concept. Companies have just recently begun to create power from these sources of energy. As a modern technology, these types of facilities are more expensive to construct and operate. As technology increases and usage increases, it's likely that overall costs will decrease. That should be a red flag there. <laughs> well, the funny thing is that Catherine and I were, you know, uh, co-keynoting this uh, conference for consumers energy, uh, what was it, like five years ago now, um, with Patty Poppy. And um, we were in this conference room. I think you were still there, Catherine. And but, like the head of like uh, procurement was basically saying the same thing to me. He was like, prove to me why I should pay a premium for clean energy. And I was like, are we still having this conversation? Like, really? We're having this conversation right now, right? Like, do I really need to show you that it's cheaper to buy solar and wind power here in Michigan? And like, it was funny because like the next year, I think that, you know, Patty had figured out how to get him on side and they were buying a lot more clean energy. But um, but it's, it, it, is, it is shocking, but not so shocking that across the 2,000 plus rural co-ops and municipal utilities and others that um, there's a lot of folks who really haven't gotten the memo. So what are some rules then? Uh, if, if you're a consumer, you're not going to be asking, is this an additional project? You know, these terms we throw around about additionality and impact are not things that consumers are generally asking. So what is a good rule of thumb when surveying whether a green power option from a utility is 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 worthy? It sounds like maybe just a specific community solar program or somewhere uh, something where you can own the actual asset is where we you can have the most impact. T t what should I be looking for as a consumer? Yeah, I don't know that I have a great answer. I would say that the community solar is interesting. So I've signed up recently for community solar here in Maryland, and I'm getting a 10% discount to what I would have paid otherwise. Um, and you have rooftop solar too, I right? do have rooftop so, solar too, but... So you've layered the two together. Yeah, but I've layered the two together. And I'm... And and they have to fully subscribe the community solar farm before they start construction. So from that perspective, it is... Um, uh, it is additional. But what I've said to people, and I know this is really hard just because even though I've been doing it for years, not a lot of other people have been, people really should educate themselves on how to invest in clean energy, right? It really is a shockingly great rate of return. 
on investment. And so like, if you're going to spend an extra 20 bucks, like if you have the mindset of like, I'm willing to pay a $20 a month premium for green power, instead invest in green power stocks. There are a lot of them that pay a dividend yield. There are also a lot of them that like, you know, you can invest in, um, you know, solar projects on nonprofit rooftops, right? And there's a lot of things like that that you can do that actually pay a really good, healthy return over 10 or 20 years, right? And it's, you know, like it's it's just one of those things where I just find that we're such a consumer culture that we're always like trying to tell people buy a different type of clothing or buy a different type of electricity or eat less meat, all of things which is wonderful. And you should try to do all of those things in your life. But like I also think that people should think about their 401k plans and think about the things that they could do with their investment dollars. I think it would actually go a long ways and probably get you a better return on investment. Well, I would also point to a couple of other resources. I spoke with Rachel Torada from the Center for Resource Solutions, and they manage green e-certification for utility green programs. They decide what qualifies for the programs. They make sure their sellers adhere to a code of conduct. They have best practices that are audited. They have tracking systems for all the recs, and they do a marketing compliance review, which is really important because you get a lot of mail from utilities that claims things that may or may not be true, and the language that is used um, could be greenwashing. And so they look at that very, very closely. And there are about a thousand facilities that they track to make sure they're not double counted through the green e-certification process. There are 3,000 utilities with 800 green power programs. Unfortunately, there's only about 2% enrollment because as it turns out, marketing and engagement with customers is really, really important to getting people to sign up to these programs. Um, So there's another resource that you can go to besides the green e-certification, which is NREL, the National Renewable Energy Lab every year has a top 10 list for utility green pricing programs. And the the top one is Portland General Electric right now. They have 20% enrollment, which just crushes any of the other utilities. And it's because they're able to communicate well with their customers. They're honest about what they're doing. They're very open and transparent about it. And I think um, that's going to be really important. So for a customer looking, look for the Greeny certification, look at the list of utilities that NREL puts out every year. They track it very closely. They've done it for a number of years and um, and get a little bit smarter on this. And I have a recommendation for a listener like Max, and I make this recommendation with a few important caveats. One is that my collaborator on the interchange is in his uh, VC firm, Energy Impact Partners, is an investor in this company. Uh, and I'm a customer of the company, and they have been a previous sponsor of the podcast way back in the day. Uh, but I am a customer of Arcadia Power, and I think that they're one of the best platforms out there for investing in community solar. You know, there are a lot of local community solar programs in different states that you should pay attention to, but Arcadia is like a nationwide platform where you can buy recs and say you're buying green power, and you know, the recs are fine, but they're not really like buying the clean electrons. But they have a lot of they can pair you to community solar programs around the country pretty easily and show you the profile of the project. You can buy a bunch of panels and then shave off a, you know money off of your bill each month. And I've found it so far to be the best platform for that kind of thing. So if you want something that's easy to track and they communicate it easily, then like the, the benefits easily, I, I, I'm a customer of theirs. Um, but there's a lot of options that we that we have provided. So you can have an impact for sure. 
And if you just got money sloshing around, then donate to an environmental organization that's like shutting down coal plants. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's where your money's going to have a greater impact. I think that brings us to our free electrons. Uh, let's see, who are we turning to first? Catherine, let's go to your free electrons. What's exciting you right now? Oh, wow. I'm so excited about this new administration and everything that they're doing that we predicted they would do. Um, so yesterday, a whole bunch of executive orders were signed. Of course, there was the getting back into Paris, which was great. But separately, there was a whole executive order on the environment. And this is exactly what we thought would happen, which is the administration, the president is laying out a policy that reads as following. It is the policy of this administration to listen to science, woohoo, to improve public health and protect our environment, to ensure access to clean air and water, to limit exposure to dangerous chemicals and pesticides, to hold polluters accountable, including those who disproportionately harm communities of color and low-income communities, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, to bolster resilience to the impacts of climate change, to restore and expand our national treasures and monuments, and to prioritize both environmental justice and the creation of well-paying union jobs necessary to deliver on these goals. That's a sentence with a lot of semicolons. Um, but what that what he's done in this executive order is saying everything, every agency is going to be pegged to that policy. And there will be an immediate review of all actions that were taken in the previous administration. And that's, you know, reducing methane emissions, fuel economy standards, appliance and building efficiency standards, the steam generation um, rulemaking. And they're going to do things like make sure, you know, cease development in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And they're going to do the social cost of carbon, not only so the social cost of carbon, but also the social cost of nitrous oxide and the social cost of methane, and make sure that they're including net agricultural productivity, human health, property damage from increased flood risk. We talked about that earlier, and the value of ecosystem services. So everybody is going to be pegged to this policy. Keystone XL was put a hold on, Was the permit was revoked, and the attorney general has been told, do not uphold any proceedings in courts that go against this policy. So right now he has already started rolling back what he can do from an executive level, everything that Trump put into place in his four years. Yeah, some of these are going to be easier to roll back, some which have been finalized. The administration is going to put legal firepower behind. And then when it comes to, for example, leases uh, in the Alaskan Arctic, they can buy out those leases. There's all sorts of ways that they, even if the leases are legally binding, that they can change that process. So the administration is definitely putting a lot of attention to this issue. Really exciting. Jigger, what's your free electron? So I'm going to maybe take this in a weird direction for me, which is that I don't know if people actually listen to or watch the the meeting of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission uh, this week, but it was quite a change, right? <laughs> Chairman Danley basically uh, was asked in December by Neil Chatterjee to table a bunch of issues and to bring them back up uh now, Danley wanted to push this stuff through uh, before, you know, the Trump administration left office. This was like sort of the moper and the transmission uh, incentives and things like that. And Chatterjee basically voted against all of it and like voted to get a lot of the stuff dropped from the meeting. And 
It was just like, I mean, for those of you who haven't listened to one of our friends at the political uh, climate podcast where, you know, uh, Neil Chatterjee came clean about, you know, how much he learned in the first year and how he regretted some of his decisions back then. And then the podcast that we did, you know, the Catherine led around, you know, uh, Neil's sort of coming to understanding that, you know, the clean energy revolution was here to stay and really valuable to Neil Chatterjee had some fantastic comments about the incoming Biden administration and how wonderful it was and how inspiring it was. Um, my goodness, has federal, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission <laughs> had a really weird four years. And then, as I learned two hours ago, our friend Rich Glick has been named the chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And he is an avid listener of the podcast and is just one of the most articulate Federal Energy Regulatory Commissioners I have ever had the pleasure to read. He is his biting you know, prose is amazing. And for those people who, you know, you know, need more stuff to read, please read his opinions because they're extraordinary. Oh, yeah. Get some popcorn and settle in. They're <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And about that whole meeting, it was so weird because all of these commissioners voted against Stanley. Like Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell never take anything to the floor unless they know they're going to win. I mean, I do not understand why he brought all that stuff up if he oh didn't think my. he could win every single vote. Just uh, it was mind boggling. Yeah, it was it was good theater for those who are, you know, FERC nerds like we are. <laughs> for whom FERC is theater? <laughs> <laughs> well, my free electron is a little bit darker Clearly, we're all excited. There's so much good stuff happening in the energy and climate world under the upcoming Biden administration. But there are a lot of dark and disturbing reverberations from the Trump administration uh, that are rooted in white grievance. And so a lot of people are thinking after the attack on the Capitol in early January about the ties to these extremist groups and broader white grievance and conspiracy theorism to uh, global warming denial. And Emily Atkin, who writes the newsletter Heated, who has been on the show recently, flagged a 2011 report. It's a peer-reviewed study on conservative white males and climate denial. And the study found that conservative white males are way more likely than any other Americans to endorse denialist views uh, about climate change. Uh, and among those conservative white males who are climate skeptics or climate denialists, they self-report understanding of global warming very well, which was a hilariously academic way of describing mansplaining. But there are a couple of reasons, and they're very tied into the reasons why you see a lot of white men storming the Capitol um, under this conspiracy banner. And that is that they, there's, they accept high levels of risk because they are often not impacted by the risks out there in the world in the same way that non-whites or women are. And they have a strong desire to keep the status quo. And they describe this in the paper as um, motivated cognition aimed at protecting identities, individuals f uh, form through their commitment to cultural norms. Anyway, I thought this was super relevant in the aftermath of what happened at the Capitol. And as we reflect on the Trump administration and what he was, what Trump himself was tapping into. And 
these acute issues that we're dealing with are so rooted in what we've been talking about related to climate denial. I thought it was a really important thing to mention. That is super interesting, Stephen. Um, and once they find all of the folks that were involved with breaking the law and creating that violence, I think we have a lot of work to do on making sure that people from those communities see themselves as the future and not benefiting from the status quo, but benefiting from moving forward on climate solutions. And I think that's the only way to get their minds to change is that for them to see the benefits. No, I totally agree. The one thing I did want to point out, though, is as a member of the DC clean energy community, um, we have several uh, folks in our community whose spouses are part of the DC police force. And they really did save the day at the Capitol uh, that day, right? It's when they were allowed to come on to the Capitol Hill grounds that they were able to disperse the crowds and get everything back to normal. And so I'm so grateful for the DC police force and what they did, frankly, to save our country. Well, I think that is going to mark the end of the show. Good to see you both. A fun night last night on the red carpet. Lots of work to do now. And um, we're going to sort through it all. So Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my two co-hosts. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Uh, We are a production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media, and you can support the show any number of ways. Send us an email to postscriptaudio at gmail.com, and maybe we'll answer your question like we did with Max. Um, Send us a message on Twitter. We do read your Twitter messages, by the way. We don't often get back to folks, but we read every single message, and very often your messages influence how we talk about things. And Give us a public shout out on Twitter as well. That's really helpful to having people find the show. And of course, ratings and reviews are extremely helpful for building the credibility and SEO of the podcast. Thanks to those who've done it over the years. I am Stephen Lacey. This is the Energy Gang, debates and discussions on the fast changing world of energy. We'll catch you next time.